Hey, Corbin. Hey, Antonio. Sorry about that. No, no worries. There's always a little bit of a kerfuffle uh, at the beginning. Um, I'm like thumbs upping the room instead of accepting the uh, speaking invite. Yeah, I um, Yeah. You, you know, we actually have some people involved with the app actually in the audience. Um, so um, I'm sure they're taking feedback on all this. I think it'd be wonderful if the room, it, I think the, the room should actually have, you know how American restaurants have this bizarre rule that if you have a reservation and you show up, they won't seat you until the entire party shows up, which is not how it typically works in Europe. I, and, and typically it drives me crazy. However, I think in, in the case of live audio podcast, <laughs> we should have American restaurant rules and, and the room cannot be started until every guest is seated, so to speak. Yeah, um, it's all good. I mean, I can kill time by noting that that is, uh, that is not Colin's problem. That's like the uh, park rangers saying that it's getting trickier and trickier to design uh, trash cans because they have to be easy enough for humans to use, but hard enough for bears not to get into. And the overlap is, you know, uh, <laughs> growing. Right. That was like my joke tweet recently that I think a lot more ML is passing the Turing test, not to because ML is getting smarter, because humans are getting actually dumber. <laughs> right. Which is the that's other a way real that. that's a real theory that like thanks to Twitter and typing and like character limits, our language is getting ever more demotic, like and declining and that the, the there's a merge there as well. Like that's a serious theory. Yeah, as a random pseudo self-plug, a couple of days ago, we had Balaji Srinivasan on the show, who just wrote a book called The Network State that I actually found quite interesting. But if you if you read the, if you look at the book itself, and again, this is no being on Balaji, I think it's a good book and I recommend it, but it, it's, every chapter is basically a Twitter thread. And like literally the graphs are like two, almost exactly 280 characters. And it's, it's almost as if the book is a series of Twitter threads, which I think is how the human mind has been shaped to think now. So I, I think we're, there's definitely something to that, to that theory. Um, not that it's necessarily a bad thing, of course. Um, great. Well, thanks for joining me. I know it's a little bit of an impromptu last minute thing. And I know we've done, well, it's, it's not true that we've done zero prep work. I've actually read some of your most recent pieces. I'm, I'm happy to see that you write, uh, for city journal, which is actually one of my favorite, um, pieces of, uh, regime Samizdat that I read these days. <laughs> oh, I love city journal. I, uh, it, it's a life goal to publish for them. I think of them as sort of the conservative New Yorker. Yeah. Oh, that's, oh, you know, I've, it's funny. I've never quite thought about it that way. For those who aren't familiar with it, uh, although, you know, usually the pull request crowd is pretty clued in. City Journal is, is sort of, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the conservative New Yorker and it's produced by the Manhattan Institute, which is a very interesting sort of free thinking institute run by a guy named Rehan Salam. I've actually done, a, I've done an in-person event with them at, at their, at their offices in Manhattan. And it's, it's, um, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a gem of an institution in the sense that it's, I mean, I, yeah, it's certainly right of center, I guess, but it, it's hard to caricature it as, you know, just one particular strain of thought. Well, as with The New Yorker, although I think it's fair to put the label conservative on it, a lot of their pieces, uh, they don't beat you over the head with the line. You know, it's deep thinking and they a lot of their best work sort of revels in the ambiguity and gives you both sides. And there's a bit of a bent, just like there is with The New Yorker, but it's very subtle and it leaves you to think for yourself. Um, I recommend it. Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking, uh, my friend uh, and, and fellow member of the Cuban Mafia, Martin Guri, actually wrote for them as well. Um, and he's definitely not a conservative uh, ideologue, um, but yeah. Not, not by any means. Um, although in our grand realignment, I think some of his thinking um, sort of puts him in that camp. I actually had him on my podcast, Shameless Plug, Tech Policy Podcast. 
Um, and I think he's amazing. Oh yeah, no, he's a genius. I, he's one of the first interviews I did with my Substack, and um, it, it is consistently because you know everything has a decay curve of relevancy to it. It's one of the few interviews that like routinely I see people just randomly come upon it and 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 retweet it um, because he he's the sort of oracular sage whenever he speaks. Um, <laughs> And particularly the role to the public was such a prescient book. And it's another book worth reading, by the way. It came out from Stripe, Stripe Press. I think it was her first or second book. And uh, it's worth noting that that book originally came out years before Trump. <laughs> right. Uh, you have to understand that it, it didn't come out in 2018 whenever it was reissued. It came out in 2013 or 14. Um, although he's such a modest guy that he doesn't take credit for predicting Trump, although, in my opinion, he kind of did. Um, but um, but let's get to let's get to your stuff, because you have your own publication history and, and, and your own thought. And I, and I thought it was very, very interesting, a lot of it. Um, most recently, speaking of City Journal, you did a piece on um, Lena Khan, who, for those who aren't familiar, is a, a very noted legal scholar. She kind of made a name for herself, I think, as a, as a actually, as a Yale law student, she wrote a, was considered a definitive piece on, on antitrust around Amazon. And then I, I think she's the FD, FTC chair now, now is, is that right, Corbin? She is, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, just to summarize your piece, um, you know, you describe her as a um, as a sort of neo Brandeisian, if I can, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, antitrust person, and which is different than the which is a sort of old school 19th century trust buster thing that you imagine, rather than the more Borkian consumer harm notion of antitrust, which is sort of typified antitrust enforcement for the past century. And I, I, I've written about this for Wired ages ago that like you know, how do you think about consumer harm in a world in which the internet product is free, right? Like what is the harm? There's no, there's no price anyone is paying. Of course there, there, there is harm, of course, but it's, it's something that's hard to think about in that framework. And I'll shut up there, but it, yeah, go ahead. If you want to talk about con and the, the sure. Answer. Yeah. That, that piece was a little bit naughty. Um, and what do I mean by that? Uh, it, it sort of noted that there have been reports that, uh, she's really ruffled a lot of feathers within the organization and created a lot of discontent. So uh, to give an example, you know, it's the government. So they like survey their employees once a year. And the question, do you think the leadership of your organization shows integrity and is honest, jumped like sixfold in the first year she was there up to like a third. Um and a lot of people interviewed for a report. Um, the reporters said a consistent theme across these interviews was how emotional these people got. They're like traumatized at how dysfunctional they feel the organization is and how hard they're being worked and uh, how badly resources are being divvied up. And so the opening of my article kind of points out that if a person uh, lacks the clairvoyance and organizational knowledge to make a thousand bureaucrat institution run smoothly, uh, what hope do they have of managing uh, the entire economy or entire industries? Because it really is just the knowledge problem scaled. Uh, there's this sort of hubris to some of the neo-Brandeisian stuff that they know how markets should be structured. And um, so that was the naughty bit. But then it gets into, you know, what have, what have they been doing over there lately? And things have not been getting off the ground as quickly as some of the neo-Brandeisians and progressives hope for. 
Part of that is really not in Lena's control at all because she spent a lot of time, several months, with a 2-2 deadlock on the commission, and you need a 3-2 majority to you know, sort of get much done. And she just regained that, so we'll see if things pick up. But, um, you know, you mentioned free products. Free, I had the good fortune to interview FTC Commissioner Noah Phillips the other day, and, and I brought that exact point up with him. I said, is the fact that some of these products are free... Um, does that sort of upset the consumer welfare standard? And he said, you know, that's the old thing. Free is a curious price. Um, and there are ways to get around freeness and analyze products uh, in terms of the amount of quality or innovation um, and whether the market is functioning in that regard. But we don't even really need to get there when we look at cases like, say, Facebook, because the first question is, is there, you know, market power? And the article, as the article discusses, um, antitrust often isn't capable of moving at the speed of markets. And I mean, I don't mean to kick Facebook too hard in the shins, but the most recent news with them is they just want to copy TikTok. I mean, they're kind of floundering um, and it's taken a lot of the wind out of the sails of this whole neo-Brandeisian pro uh, project that, you know, the market behemoths are looking a little less behemothy, uh, you get inflation in there, people start worrying more about how much food costs than this sort of um, luxury opinion of uh, hating big tech. So, you know, that's the piece in a nutshell. Uh, yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned the the, the Facebook thing. Um, in a totally separate topic, I recently did a, a Web3 substack and I, I commented how the, the tech giants rarely ever get unseated from their sort of hegemony via competition alone, right? Microsoft never lost a desktop. Uh, Twitter has never not been the public square. Amazon's probably not going to lose e-commerce. Apple's probably not going to lose devices. I mean, arguably, Facebook is not going to lose its type of social media, but the, the type of social media that's most relevant changes very, very quickly. And it's it's no secret, even I as a former Facebooker would concede that they either try to copy everything or buy everything because their ability to actually innovate themselves is... I think at this point, somewhat limited for a bunch of reasons that one can speculate about. Um, so, um, but, you know, the, the reality is, I mean, this is a little bit orthogonal to the to the legislation question, because that attempts to use law as the as the tool, not not the markets. Right. Is that you have to create a, a different a different sort of playing field. And and and, in, and typically these companies aren't very good at actually jumping like one of the one of the more popular chapters in my, my memoir about working at Facebook was the, the one where Google launched Google Plus, right? Which mm, yeah. you, you probably have to remind most Zoomers what the hell that even was these days. But it was a, an attempt to copy Facebook. And it, I mean, arguably, it was better and cleaner in some regards. It did have some cool features. But like the typical thing, you can't, you don't beat a, an incumbent by making it 20% better. It has to be like 200% better. And so, of course, it, it kind of, even though Facebook got completely freaked out, it, it basically flopped under the weight of its own kind of blindness. It, it was actually a good history lesson when I read your book to be reminded of how it was like DEFCON 1 at Facebook when that when that happened. And uh, one thing that often happens in antitrust is there's sort of hindsight bias where um, things that fail to materialize just sort of get conveniently forgotten. And then things that fall by the wayside um, get forgotten. And what you end up with is this failure to recognize the sort of Schumpeterian gale of creative destruction. Um, you know, the way I'd put it is like, if you are so confident in your antitrust enforcement knowledge, and I don't want to like, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there is no place for antitrust. There totally is. But like, 
why aren't you going out and picking stocks? Like if you have this much confidence in your ability to like navigate the market and read it and understand where it's going, go make a killing on the market by betting on the people that you seem to know are going to be the winners. And instead what we get is like, you know, my favorite example is in uh, 2005 when the FTC uh, put the kibosh on an attempted merger, Blockbuster wanted to buy Hollywood video. And they were like, no, 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 that's, that's totally not cool. That would like destroy competition. And it was a matter of months later that Netflix launched uh, its streaming service, went from, you know, no longer just sending the discs in the mail to like uh, getting online. And so that's the, it, to, to your point, it, it's disruption. You know, TikTok figures out its algorithm and does something totally different that, you know, you, you get blindsided by the thing you don't see coming. I think it's part of the problem, and then I'll shut up, you know, the right-wing people who are trying to design, you know, like Parler, Getter, or uh, Gab. It's like, it's not even what you said, the 20% better. There's just like Twitter clones, but with like selection bias and everybody agreeing. It's like, there's no way that's ever going to succeed. Yeah, I mean, it, right. It, it's hard. It also, it's hard, It's also hard to compete with products that have network effects, right? That in some sense, there's, there's a baked in advantage. But again, it's not clear that anti, I mean, I guess you could go back and forth on it. Maybe, maybe for, for pedagogical reasons, maybe it's worth mentioning examples where you or I think that antitrust actually would be just justified and where one word isn't. Uh, maybe I'll go first. There's a piece of news that uh, Wall Street had an exclusive on that apparently, and I didn't read through the end of the article to be quite honest, but it, it, it's an old story, right? So Google, for those who aren't familiar, there's, most much of its revenue comes from the search side of things, right? Which is at this point, I don't know what it is, probably 80 plus percent of its revenue. And then a solid fraction of it comes from what's broadly called display advertising, which is all the other ads that you see on the internet. And whether you realize it or not, and whether you're on Google or not, a lot of those are actually powered by Google technology. And so outside of the sort of Facebook, there's like basically an ads duopoly between Google and Facebook. And outside of Facebook's very siloed inventory and siloed ad network, there's like the open web, much of which flows through this often very complex and opaque Google ads ecosystem. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have a long history here. I created probably the closest Facebook ever had to an open ads marketplace was called Facebook Exchange, which was sort of my baby at Facebook. And it features prominently in the book that you mentioned, Corbin. And, you know, it, it, it's nominally an open ecosystem and an open market, but really it isn't, right? And Google has been caught um, in some sense colluding with its own, uh, products inside that marketplace or rigging the auction in various ways. Um, recently, Senator Mike Lee, this actually came up in the context of a Lincoln Network conversation that I had. Um, Mike Lee is a senator from Utah and he passed the, um, you probably know the acronym, I don't remember, it, it has kind of a name to it, but it was basically enforcing forcing Google to actually be more transparent about its media costs and data and all the rest of it. Because that's one of the problems, right? That like the ads ecosystem works completely different than the financial ecosystem in that it's almost as if Imagine Goldman owned the exchange, the broker, the bank, the clearinghouse, like literally every box on the map was owned by one company. That's often how the, the ads world works, right? And so anyhow, that, that's one example where I think I could see how antitrust regulars would say, this is nuts. <laughs> we have yeah. to step in. And, and, and the thought that someone else is just going to outcompete Google and come up with a different ad exchange. I mean, we tried doing it at Facebook and it just, it's never happened. So anyway, that's one example where I would say, you know, maybe, I don't know if you agree with me, but that's one example where I would say, you know what, maybe antitrust action actually is justified. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it kind of reminds me of how, what I often say to people is antitrust really doesn't um, get its priorities straight in my opinion, because there's totally collusion in the market, but it's generally like 
the three distributors of sand in the Southeast region or whatever. Um, I, no offense to the actual sand distributors, but I'm speaking in, you know, figuratively like where nobody's really paying attention and it's kind of a dark market and there's few enough people that you can actually collude. Uh, there are totally antitrust, like rampant antitrust violations. The people who are getting watched really closely, it tends to be less so. But then you turn to the ad tech market, like it's totally obtuse, like very few people outside of it understand how it works. So that's one sort of red flag. Uh, and then the other question that I always go to is like, is there actually a moat? And I'm not making this up. Like barriers to entry is a factor that should be considered in antitrust analysis. And so if you have a lot of, la you know, if you have strong staying power, if you're Apple and you control the app store and you've invented the app store and it's 2009, even if you dominate the market, um, not, like an antitrust case is pretty ridiculous. Like you invented that market. You get to reap your benefit. If it's 2022 and you still have, uh, a lot of market power, and you're still doing what kind of looks like maybe monopoly rents, um, then it becomes much more suspicious. So without, and I should put a caveat, these cases tend to be incredibly complex. They tend to have lots of discovery. They're very fact intensive. So I'm speaking in terms of like instincts and like the picture. I'm not actually saying I think antitrust X case will succeed or fail. I'm not saying that, but like, I agree with you both that the ad tech one and then my example would be like, you look at the Apple App Store and just the, the sheer number of years that they have been dominating um, that product in a pretty concentrated market. I mean, you pretty much have Apple, you have Android. It's kind of it, um, especially in the United States. You know, Android is much more prevalent internationally. Um, these are things that, that legitimately warrant antitrust scrutiny. Let's put it that way. Yeah, interesting. So is there so is there a case to be made just to, to always take the counter argument? I try to keep myself intellectually honest by arguing the opposite point of view just to see what the merits of it are. You know, is there an argument for monopoly? I mean, I think Peter Thiel famously said, and of course, he's speaking from the point of view of a venture capitalist, that companies should aspire to monopoly because then they can, you know, they, they can, you know, extract excess profits from that. Uh, a slightly more historical argument might be, well, look at Bell Labs. Bell, Bell Labs which produced much of the innovation that drove late you know, 20th century technology, had an absolute monopoly. It was broken up and then Bell Labs basically went away. Um, and then just one from the pure product perspective, it's like, okay, great. Look, I mean, the App Store thing does seem like it's got a stranglehold on stuff, but you know what? The iPhone's actually pretty good. And clearly there, there is some value to having an integrated product literally from the chip to the software to the App Store that you're using. Clearly Apple is you know, driving some, some major value and having this very coherent product that it can sort of controls. Is there an argument like, it, like what is in some sense the moral case for antitrust? I mean, I, I guess that gets back to like, are we in a Brandeisian or a Borkian world of like, what is the what is the, the moral outrage that we're trying to sort of snuff? Is it just the fact that, you, well, monopolies, once they've gotten past the point of diminishing consumer returns, are worth shutting down because at that point it just becomes inertial? Or, you know... It, is there such a is there is there a good monopoly that you could cite that say like yeah actually we shouldn't we shouldn't enforce antitrust? Yeah, so my mind when you say all that it goes straight to what's known as the Nirvana fallacy. Uh, I don't know if Harold Demsitz like coined the term, but you know he's connected to it a lot. Um, which says 
Look, just because I can tell a story about how, wow, well, and it, like Apple's had a lot of control over the App Store, kind of seems like let, maybe right now they're getting monopoly rents out of it. You know, they're, they're no longer like getting what you might call return on investment. But like, where do you draw that line and who draws it and how and how do you tell? And then how do you fix it? How do you remedy it? Do you, do you allow people to start making forks of the iOS? Like, that could be a total disaster. Um so you have the problem, and, and in Apple, it's a, it's, a, it's a really specific problem known as refusal to deal in um, antitrust, where if Apple says, we don't want to have App X in our app store because we think it's a security risk or whatever, uh, the only way really to fix it is for a court or the government to basically central plan and come up with the price at which that arrangement will be made and the other terms of service and what the two parties have to do. It, it's almost like a, a specific performance on a contract. The law has always been really against that because you know, if two people don't wanna work with each other, it's a nightmare to force them to. You'll always have disputes, it'll be a mess. So it's like, even if you see some dominance, the alternative could be worse. So that's one thing to note. And then are, are monopolies ever good? That's the story. Bell Labs is the, um, the poster child for this. And I think Schumpeter got into this of like, what do monopolists do with their monopoly rents? There used to be this attitude that like the great reward of a monopolist is a quiet life. And arguably that's not really how companies work, certainly not in the modern day. What they tend to do is they dump money into like Google X and they start trying to like send uh, hot air balloons up that provide internet or they try to make like self-driving cars or in Facebook, it's clearly like they're burning piles of money developing the metaverse. And I think the, the question of like, does that ultimately work to our benefit or not is just an incredibly empirical question that I certainly have no way of answering. And I don't really know if anyone else does. It goes to that question again of like, who decides and are we better off having the government try to be like, oh, you know, Apple, you've dominated the App Store for exactly eight years. Okay, time's up. Um, and does that set the incentives right? Like, I don't really trust anybody else to know the answer to that. But at the same time, I wouldn't sit here and tell you like, oh, monopolies are awesome because we got Bell Labs. Who knows? Right. Yeah, it's hard to tell, right? I mean, you're citing the Google X example, and it, I've never worked at Google, but I've, I've known many friends who work there. And I, I, it, to be very reductionist about, uh, reductionist about it, AdWords pays for everything, right? And, and culturally, internally, if you're not on the ads team, ads are seen with sort of derision and not thought about at all, right? And somehow at, they, they live in this bizarre corporate campus where, you know, millions just fall from heaven and they work on weird, cool stuff. Um, Facebook was kind of like that when I was there. Um, the, the ads, ads were definitely a necessary evil. Um, Zuck himself said in the, in the pre IPOS one that, you know, we don't, we don't make products to make, to make money. We make money to build products. Right. And so like the ads were, and you know, and the ads itself was kind of a get up. Like it was not the, the place for ambitious Facebookers to be put it that way. Um, and so it's, it's weird to, to think like, well, on the one hand we get things like maps and like, they're not lost leaders because there's no profit on the back end they're trying to drive, but they're just things that are naturally kind of money losing that are effectively being subsidized by AdWords. On, on the flip side, that can also be used in a, in a predatory way, right? I mean, Microsoft famously tried to use its desktop advantage to take over the internet and fought a withering war with Netscape that it ultimately sort of won, even though it didn't really win the internet more broadly. Um, and so, so again, once again, it's hard to draw that line 
and without a beneficent dictator, <laughs> right, or a very enlightened dictator to, to draw that line, it's difficult to, to see. You put um, DC Swamp in the title, and, and let me take a slightly orthogonal turn. It's but it it explains my hesitancy of antitrust enforcement and, and ramping it up. Um, actually, I'll I'll start even a further step back. I'm obsessed with this book by Joseph Tainter. He's an anthropologist called The Collapse of Complex Societies. And it's basically all about how if you go back and you study societies throughout history, uh, be it even like, like from the Olmecs to the Egyptians to the ancient Romans, you see this consistent pattern where um, complexity is used as a tool for problem solving, like an increase of administration. Um, but complexity increases across the society in a way that like uh, returns on investment don't keep up. So uh, you have to spend more and more and more on uh, legitimacy. Got to keep up all those temples and pillars and build those things. Elite compensation almost never goes down. Social welfare programs are almost never reduced. And then the administration has a, a tendency to always grow and never to shrink. And at, over time, the use of complexity to solve problems has these diminishing marginal returns, and that is the thing that leads to collapse. Eventually, the whole system becomes so sclerotic that it uh, it can't cope. It can't meet new problems. And uh, this is a thread that runs through the thought of like the economist Manker Olson, and it really applies to the modern day. Uh, and we have that problem with our state capacity here. We have it with our... Uh, alphabet soup agencies in DC. We have it with all the sort of barnacle interest groups that fight in the swamp. And what this all swings back to is antitrust is the ultimate like shiny toy object of the sort of accumulated interest group, complexity, sclerosis, fighting that leads societies to collapse problem. Because it's this wide open thing that everybody wants to use for their pet little project. Like, uh, I want to block the MGM deal because I don't like Amazon. And even if that would create economies of scale and eliminate double marginalization and actually create efficiencies, well, I believe in like the rights of the workers. So we're going to attack that. And every group ends up sending their lawyers in and fighting in the regulatory agencies and in litigation. And none of it's democratic. It's not like your lawmaker making a law like Schoolhouse Rock. It's all going on in this way that is like the system we've built on top of the system that's super complicated and super expensive. And lawyers like me back when I was in private practice make tons and tons of money on it because only like really uh, in the know people can navigate the system and it's all like a deadweight loss on society. And so as sexy as it sounds of like, we're going to take antitrust or we're going to like smash the trusts. It's like in reality, like the nitty gritty, ugly reality is just all that stuff I just described that like makes societies collapse. And happy Friday to you, Corbin. <laughs> uh, yeah, right, right. Uh, <laughs> that's such a rousing thing to go into the weekend with. Well, I, I was gonna. Well, I was gonna raise some version of that same argument, right? Because if you look at again, if, if you look at the, the Lena Khans and, and Elizabeth Warrens of the world, or even you know Biden's tweets recently, right? Like it's clear that it's not necessarily even you know I'm engaging in anti you know in trust busting for the sake of more efficient markets. It's more like they hate capitalism, right? Or they hate certain types of techno capitalism. I mean, just to cite a kind of dumb example, you know, Biden had that tweet about how 
somehow it was the fault of gas station owners because gas prices were so high. Because yeah, that was like super... straight Hugo Chavez stuff right there. Right, it's right, straight Hugo Chavez, who by the way did did actually nationalize the Venezuelan oil industry, and now literally the country with the biggest oil reserves imports oil, which is kind of a an instantiation of Milton Friedman's joke about putting the government in charge of the Sahara. But getting getting back on topic, like the thought that like all the independent you know independent gas station owners, most of which are like single gas station type, like there's no. I mean, some of them are maybe owned, you know, there's perhaps cartels of them, but the thought that all of them got together to collude to make gas, you know, six bucks a gallon in California is, you know, is a, is, it's a preposterous statement, right? It's like, then what, why wouldn't the guy down the street then make it 550? Like, what, of course he would, right? If he could. And so, um, anyhow, um, right. Like you're saying, it seems to be like antitrust is now an instrument of whatever the reigning view is of the party in power towards corporate power. And by the way, not just to like throw this on the left, right? I think one thing you wrote about recently is DeSantis's uh, social media, uh, I don't know if it was a, a directive or a law in Florida, right? Like the conservatives, which to me is continuously surprising because conservatives tend to do very well on social media. For example, you know, Ben Shapiro basically dominates Facebook. You know, the, the right has gotten upset about what it considers to be censorship or content moderation of its message on social media. And so it's passing laws around what you, what, what, you know, companies can or can't actually have on social media. And so it's, it's intriguing. Yeah. Anyhow, it, I think both sides can use it, but in the top, in the, in the context of antitrust, it seems to be mostly a, kind of an anti-capitalist vehicle at the moment. Well, the main, so those things in my mind are kind of connected because uh, even though the Florida one is technically not an antitrust law. It actually has this weird antitrust provision that's not what's made headlines, but I, I digress. Um, you say, you know, they want to use, they, like the Lena Khan types, want to use antitrust to do this or that with the corporate, uh, you know, they hate corporations. And the key point is, like, they want to do that because they can't get through Congress the thing they want to do. They can't, like, use the system the way it was designed. Like, you know, the Constitution with the Article 1, Article 2, Article 3, schoolhouse rock version of government which is like actually the way it was set up they can't do that because they don't have enough buy-in across the political spectrum uh and so you and this goes into a whole thing uh that the political scientist Stephen tellus has this term clujocracy which is absolutely awesome which is like how do we navigate governments in a system that like the main piece of which is that congress legislates and makes the rules has broken down and no longer works like then what happens and we end up with exactly, again, what I was describing of like all these fights going on in the letter agencies. So it's a, it's a workaround. The Florida law in its way is actually kind of similar in the sense of it's like, if you wanted to regulate social media, and uh, I actually thought it's funny you said we didn't really do any prep. I was thinking we'd be talking about like content moderation, all that stuff. Maybe we can get into that later. But uh, if you wanted to regulate speech, and let's just for the moment, pretend you're not running straight into the First Amendment, which is like a huge assumption because you totally are. Uh, you would want to do that on a nationwide basis. The notion that like a state government would try to set the rules for the national uh, social media market the way that Florida has the law you mentioned is called SB 7072. Like that's a terrible idea. Uh, and Texas actually took it a step further. They passed one called HB 20. There's a real law. It got blocked in the courts, but it, it I, I kid you not, not only did it like ban uh, viewpoint discrimination among uh, social media posts, which basically just means like must carry across a huge swath of content, but it arguably says that the social media companies are not allowed to geofence Texas in response. They like have to do business there and 
they have to give speech from outside of Texas to Texans. So like if I post uh, whatever, like a, a manifesto on how to like be a better anorexic or like the Buffalo shooting manifesto or like an animal cruelty video from where I'm standing in California, uh, they have to show it to everyone in Texas, even if they block it everywhere else. Now, you imagine 50 states doing this. It's a terrible system. You could literally end up with, like, Gavin Newsom over here passing some law that says stuff has to be taken down, that the Texas law requires to be up, and you end up with, like, thank goodness we have a supremacy clause that says, like, no, 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 states can't do this. But you see that it's like everybody in the system refuses, like, because the main thing that is supposed to work, which is that Congress makes our rules, is not working, everybody is trying to do workarounds, and it ends up just being a huge clusterfuck. That's, that's, a, that's a DC term of art, Corbin, of course, that you're using. The pardon, pardon my French, yes. And well, I love the term kludocracy. For those who aren't getting it, like in, in tech speak, a kludge spelled either double O or with a U is like this like kind of ugly but workable hack from code. And so it's funny to apply that to, uh, to government, but I can see it. I mean, and arguably you can say the same thing about the Supreme Court with conservatives now, right? And again, it seems like Congress just isn't working. I mean, this is, this is <laughs> this, I, I've said this again and again, because it, it seems so true, right? That like the United States is this bizarre, almost religious experiment in which you have this scriptural document handed down by prophetic founders, interpreted by this sort of priestly court um, and then argued over, you know, and every political crisis seems like a religious schism. And you, you would think federalism would let you kind of eat up, soak up the slack or, or the differences in opinion. But of course, one side of the scriptural divide always uses some instrument of the federal government or another to impose its interpretation on, on, on what it perceives to be heretics, right? And whether that be, um, again, the FTC or SCOTUS or in the extreme case, <laughs> the U.S. Army. Um, someone always tries to impose their vision of, of the United States of America. And, you know, I, I, that's why I'm kind of skeptical of federalism kind of getting us out of our partisan divide. But that's a, a random political sort of digression. Um, well, and one thing, so um, in particular, the decision last week was West Virginia versus EPA, which is this huge administrative law decision at the Supreme Court. If you haven't heard of it, you really should have. Um, in some ways, it is just as earth shaking to our political firmament as overturning Roe versus Wade, certainly in the way that it, it ripples through uh, the whole swamp and how it operates. And within it, what you have, I should back up and just explain, uh, it basically codified or, or put into our law officially this thing called the major questions doctrine, which in a nutshell says Congress can't just like say, go make good laws to an agency uh, if it wants something really important done. Uh, it has to say, hey, uh, you know, implement a cap and trade program to reduce climate emissions. It can't just say, put in the best system of emission reduction. Uh, that's uh, too vague. It's too cryptic. We can't, especially, I won't get into all the details, but if it's based on a 1970 law that appears to be aimed at like air particulates and not like carbon dioxide and like climate, the whole world or whatever. Um, but how do you get to that assumption that like, well, Congress doesn't tell agencies to do stuff in vague language if it's really important. If it matters, then we presume that Congress will be more specific. That's like this assumption about how Congress operates. And a kind of uh, 
it's a bit of a stretch, right? Because if you're a congressperson, you actually love vague laws. Like, you're a Democrat, I'm a Republican, we can't agree, we can't compromise, so let's just make it kind of vague and toss it to the courts and let them figure it out. Like, that's how laws often actually get made. Um, and the Supreme Court is basically saying, uh, no, we're going to assume that, that you guys have your act together and you make good compromises and you are direct and do the tough choices. In dissent, it goes the other way. And it, it also tells a story that's kind of faulty where it's like, you notice I just said compromise and pass the thing. Well, the whole point there is the legislatures, uh, legislators haven't had a meeting of the minds where they both have in mind, you know, cap and trade is allowed under this law. And Justice Kagan in dissent says, well, our job is to sort of help them along because clearly what they want is for the regulators to like benefit society in some way that's roughly uh, this uh, progressive environmental goal. Um, and at the end of the day, what you have is the Supreme Court telling two totally divergent stories about what this sort of fictional entity Congress wants and intends and its hopes and dreams as if like 535 people are all on the same page when they pass a law. Um, and so that's what the court is doing, sort of floundering in this environment where Congress rarely updates the law. They end up doing kind of what you're saying, this rabbinical debate over the meaning of these ancient texts. And by ancient, I mean, you know, like the Clean Air Act that was passed in 1970 before climate change was really on anyone's mind. And we're now dusting it off and trying to adapt it to new problems because Congress won't step up and do it for us. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it doesn't seem very stable, Corbin. <laughs> this doesn't sound like a. a safe no, situation. no, it doesn't. It's it's uh, actually I captioned in my article on this. The section is war in the clojocracy. Like what the justices are doing is they're fighting like this undeclared civil war over how the administrative state and the Supreme Court are to share power in a system in which the entity that is supposed to have power, Congress, will not exercise it. They would rather go and shout at each other on cable news than sit down in committee and actually pass laws. Right. And, and, that, and that body is presumably the, in some sense, the, you know, the weighted, the weighted forum for, for popular will, right? Like I, I think I tweeted, you know, just talk about the totally non-controversial topic of abortion for one second. Um, you know, that it's interesting that in Europe, um, the, if you look at most polling, uh, p views of abortion in the U.S. and Europe are, are very analogous, right? Which is like, yes, to first trimester, maybe second, no to the third, right? That's just like, but the, the poll, that, speaking at a very high level, that's what the polls seem to show. And in Europe, public policy has actually converged to that. Um, and if you look at most of Europe, I mean, it varies country to country, but it's roughly, a, you know, 11 to 14 week thing. Um, and in the U.S., it's, it's completely bipolar. It's either no, or it's up, up until viability, which is many Americans may don't realize way beyond the limits in Europe. And so it, it's just odd. And then if, if you look at gun control, another uncontroversial topic, like, like <laughs> gun control, um, the polling says one thing in the U.S., which is a far more sort of moderate message. And then, of course, the actual law and the rhetoric is completely different. And so it just seems odd that in some sense in Europe, not to be like Mr. Pro-European here, but things actually converge to sort of what is the popular conception of how things should be. And in the U.S., it pins to either one extreme or the other. 
at for just about every issue you can possibly name. And somehow to me, I don't deeply understand DC. Maybe you understand it better than I do. I'm still kind of a naive, but it, it must be related to this notion that all these battles are fought in this semi-religious way in organizations that usually issue down very binary decisions and can be co-opted in, in various ways. Well, first of all, to step way outside my area of expertise for two sentences, I, I don't know if you've seen these protests of the Dutch farmers. Um, oh, yeah, with the manure and the, the tractors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know anything about like on the ground European politics, but it does look like, you know, maybe they're not quite as con- consensus based as, as that. I, I don't know. But, well, the, well the, the, the clash there in, in Europe is that they have a they have a super they have like a super national state going on, and so the EU the EU is not particularly democratic. So again, abortion law, well, similar to the US, is state by state in Europe, right? So there's yeah. In, in any case, it, could I it be maybe, that in Europe yeah. the just elites still have a much firmer grip uh, grip on rulership than here, and like here, like the inmates have way more taken over the asylum. You know, hard to say. It's a hard generalization. I, I, I do think there's something there's something to the fact that parliamentary democracies in general are just run a little bit different than bipartisan presidential systems, right? And something about our primaries, which tend to attract, I think, extreme voices to begin with, lands you at extreme candidates that then everyone is forced to pick between two extremes. While in mo- at least the politics, the non-U.S. countries whose politics I follow, which is mostly Spain and Israel to a certain extent, like you'll see, if you look at the total number of parties in either Spanish or Israeli parliament, there's like a dozen parties, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and they're, and, and but the thing, and then, if, but if you actually looked at the U.S., there's probably of order a dozen different factions as well, but they just get binned into one of two. And then the extreme takes over that bin and the voices kind of get lost while the constant necessity to build like actual co like the Israeli government just fell basically. And Bennett got the boot because his very shaky coalition in, in Israel, like no party has anything close to the 60 seats required. And so there's constant coalition building. And he had a super shaky coalition going all the way from left and like the actual Arab parties to the religious nationalists on the right. And so anyhow, point being like, if one of those little coalitions is like dissatisfied, it can bring down the government. Well, that's just not true in the U.S., right? Like, well, and then the other factor that is worth bringing up is like America, like Americans are not house trained. Like we never have been like the like we we uh, so this government, right, defends us from the French and then is like, hey, will you help pay for, you know, how we protected you with a stamp tax? And we were like, no. So then we set up a government and then Hamilton is like, hey, uh, can we put a little tax on whiskey and people in Western Pennsylvania? You're like, no, they freak out. Like, no, the term is indigenous American berserk. And uh, my favorite example of this is actually the Astor Place riot. There was once a riot in New York in which like a dozen people died over who was the better Shakespearean actor. Um, now there were threads of like nativism and politics in there that if you like scratch the surface were there, but like the notion that Americans would have a riot, like a deadly riot over who is the better actors. Like that sounds right to me that jives. And there's that thread of sort of paranoia and conspiracism that now with the whole Trump thing, you know, is way out in the open and it's basically taken over one of the parties. But like that thread runs through the entire history of the country. Yeah. I mean, that reminds me of uh, what is it? The paranoid style in American politics. By, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is a great essay slash book by uh, the name escapes me. You probably know who it is, Corbin. Um, 
Yeah, no, no, I do, but it's it's. Uh, I can't remember. It's a it's a German name. Anyhow, it's, if you just Google the paranoid style American politics, you'll find it. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely think there's an innate, there's a Native American crazy in some sense, which is both amazing, right? It produces people like Elon and also amazing. Yeah. No, I didn't yeah. mean to say it's uniformly yeah. negative, but at, at by any stretch, like I uh, I yeah. can kick Europeans in the shins with the best of them for sure. Right, but I, I, I like I'm a, I'm a big believer in American exceptionalism, but that that also means that Americans are exceptionally good at th- some things and like exceptionally bad at some things, right? Not, and then I'm going to sound like these horrible Europhiles, right? But like the fact that the fact that Spain has better trains and roads, Spain, which has a country which a GDP per capita that's like less than half the U.S., right? Or that you go to like the poor part of Spain where my family's from, and the highways are better than California, or California, which is its own global economy, basically. It's just like, I just don't understand how this could be so fucked up. And, you know, in my, in my, in my perfect Franken state, right, you would have like the American private sector and like a European public sector, and then you would be living in utopia. But somehow that, that seems impossible to actually engineer. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, yeah. So like my wife has a friend who married a Norwegian and she now lives in Norway and she'll pull the like, oh, isn't, isn't it nice here? And everything's so well run. And it's like, well, first of all, in the case of Norway, like, yeah, go find a bunch of oil in the ocean. But like, then also have a population that's like smaller than Los Angeles County. Right. Um, that's very homogenous, which, you know, comes with its own downsides. Um, but yeah, the, the American, the indigenous American berserk, which I think Philip Roth came up with that one. Um, it's, it's, it's been weird to see that play out, especially in my adult lifetime. Like I was, uh, sort of the conservative kid who thought he was conservative growing up in the Bay Area. Like I went to law school in Berkeley and and uh, thought that like the Republican Party was like Mitt Romney or whatever. And I was pretty cool with that. And then this whole thing exploded and all these people that like I didn't know, I, I'm exaggerating, but like I didn't know existed took over the party. And it's interesting because the way I viewed my job in, in what I do in DC is sort of as like, um, Richard Posner talks about Oliver Wendell Holmes this way, slight digression of like, there's philosophers and there's anti-philosophers. So there's people like Plato trying to like figure out some rationalistic way of looking at the world. And then there's people being like, no, 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 that's a bunch of BS. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like it doesn't work. And at the end of the day, the anti-philosophers are still philosophers, whether they like it or not, but they are anti-philosophers. So I am like, I think of myself as this like anti-lobbyist or like anti-swamp creature who's working to like make the system work the way it's supposed to according to the rules, um, who's fighting the lobbyists or whatever. At the end of the day, that still makes me a swamp creature, whether I, I like it or not. But like, that's how my, whatever, my created self-image. And to like, to give a very concrete example here, article two of the constitution gives the president a removal power which basically makes it so that the president can have control over the executive branch so that it will be democratically accountable to an elected leader and will sort of run with sort of a unified plan. And we messed up that system back in the 30s. We created independent agencies and then the Supreme Court basically just to stick it in the eye of FDR was like, you want to make them independent where like the president can't remove the commissioners? Ah, that sounds cool. Let's do it. Um, And restoring that removal power seemed like a really good idea to me circa 2015 um, because it would make good governance. It would restore democratic accountability. um, And I still feel that way, but it gets really shaky when you elect a guy president who gets up at a podium and is like, 
oh, hey, my lawyers just told me that I have an Article 2 that lets me do whatever I want. And you go, holy smokes, like, so this indigenous American berserk, my point being, like, now has enough power and is trying to basically just burn things down that it's created a bit of an identity crisis for a person like me because um, there's sort of, we need to make the administrative state say work more in accord with our founding document and the way our government's structured because it will, you know, going back to my like complexity will kill us. Let's try to undo that and make the system run cleaner. Uh, and yet I find myself weirdly aligned with these people who are like, burn it down. Like DC's run by pedophile rings and like, you know, the comet ping pong pizza shooter mentality. True. But on the other hand, it would be nice that somehow you could somehow the Leviathan never shrinks. It only gets bigger. Um, it, it sounds like I didn't realize you're on the West Coast. You've probably driven around California. And if you drive into California, I drive between Nevada and California a lot. There's these um, agricultural inspection stations. I think were put up due to some sort of like fruit fly scare in the 60s and 70s or something. And it it's just incredible. You, you drive through these things. It slows down all of traffic. There's like a stop sign. And there's a guy standing there who just waves you through. And he never, yeah, he, yeah. And he never doesn't wave you through. And in fact, right next to the guy, I'm not making this shit up. I've got a photo of it, so I can post it. There's a sign that says, you know, now hiring for presumably another guy to stand there and wave. <laughs> and and the 13 percent of standing, which is like the highest marginal tax rate in in California, which is very very high, is going to pay for a guy to wave at you while he slows down traffic for something that no longer serves any purpose and has been there for 30 years, right? And it's like, how do you kill the Leviathan? I mean, getting back to your point about how complex societies collapse. The administrative state gets so large and never elects to make itself smaller. And um, I mean, I, the burn it all down thing obviously is a little bit nihilistic, but I, I can sort of see where that that rage is coming from when I, every time I drive through that inspection station on the California border. <laughs> for sure, for sure. But I think it it's not very direct. Yeah. First of all, by the way, yes, I'm in Lafayette, California. So you and I are probably like half an hour away from each other right now, which is kind of funny. Um, but uh if there's no plan, like it basically it takes experts to beat experts. And I think that was the main thing we learned with President Trump, um, who love him or hate him, was kind of just a noise machine. It's like it's not like he actually understood how to uh, whatever, like reduce the power of the Federal Trade Commission. Like he just doesn't operate on that level. What he does is he taps into those feelings that you are describing that are like legit. So you're tapping into legit frustration, but then you're just sort of aimlessly yelling like to me that's like my whole thing my my main problem with populism is just a fundamentally pragmatic one of like it's ineffective um and the, actually this ties back to be honest to the whole issue of like content moderation and florida's law and texas's law and our whole obsession over like what can and cannot be said on social media um you know, you know full well, there's like this whole uh, integralist uh, new right movement. I think I heard you speaking to Balaji that you actually went to the National Conservatism Conference, which is yep. interesting. Um, and what does that mean and what does it stand for? And you've noted it's kind of just a LARP. Um, and the way I would put it personally is there's this incoherent sort of very neurotic divide on the right right now where um, there's this one tendency of let's make life more like the 50s or let's make it more traditional or, or if you're 
of a certain sort. You're like, 1950s? No, no, let's make it like the 14th century church. And that's the LARP part. But then there's also this, you know, the, the one you were talking about, the frustration and the tying into the indigenous American berserk. There's always been this tendency on the right that now is very ascendant of, you don't tell me what to do, burn it all down. I don't play by your rules, uh, especially now that the left is very ascendant culturally. It's, you know, thumbing your nose at all institutions and like 5G causes COVID. Uh, and those two impulses don't actually play very well together. And this is before you even get to the question of like, what's the electoral constituency for the one versus the other and how do you align them? Well, that means that when you actually get down to like concrete policy proposals, the barrel is pretty, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Like it's really unclear what you do. Like a lot of these integralist types, they talk at a very high level of generality and they really don't like getting down to the nitty gritty where it becomes like, well, I want to like force businesses to shut on Sunday. And then everybody's like, wait, no, that, that doesn't sound, that sucks. That I, I just wanted to talk about like the Catholic mass being cool or whatever. So what do you, what do you rally around? You end up rallying around this really dumb, superficial thing of like, well, they put labels on my tweet and I'm really pissed about that. Um, and that becomes this thing that gets totally overblown and, Putting aside whether, you know, Twitter or Facebook goes too far with their fact checking, maybe they do, but like the degree to which the right has picked that up and made it their banner and made it the story of this Orwellian Kafka-esque society or whatever, um, I actually think the, the, the lostness and the lack of a coherent meaning behind the whole project is what drives the focus on that particular issue. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you are highlighting an interesting divide there. I mean, I, I think it's worth going further. So for those who aren't familiar, the, the integralist thing is, I mean, it, it, there's a lot you could say there, but it's the idea of fusing typically Catholic, you know, the Catholic church and, and the state with something along the lines of like the, the Spanish Franco estate of, you know, decades ago. And um, although the, the sort of lightweight version, we they don't co quite go that far, but the lightweight version we get here is similar to what you said, Oh, you know, ban porn, you know, make it, closed stores on Sunday, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's part of that. And then, you know, I think part of the problem, I was raised Catholic myself, right? Is that the Catholics, like the, the default thought of it is like, oh, I'm the default religion in any country I'm in. And that's true in most countries, but definitely not the United States, right? So, you know, I, I often want to just want to point the numbers and really, you realize that like max, 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 like 20% of the U.S. population is Catholic, right? Like you, you would never actually get anything to do like a majority. Of, of whom like 90% are like, you know, buffet Catholicism. Right, 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 right. But, but I think one thing that, that is non-LARP and is kind of real and is worth noting, which I think you're, you're kind of, you're citing a specific example of, which is that this new right is different. The old right that we're used to is the Reagan right, or as the new writers would call it, the fusionist right, which is sort of small business, low taxes, socially kind of conservative, but so small government that they wouldn't actually impose that morality in any way. And I think the new right, the people actually doing, not, I'm not going to name names because they'll retweet me and it'll be annoying, but not the sort of new right loudmouth blue checks on Twitter, the people who actually are in politics like DeSantis, Vance, Masters potentially, et cetera, right? They're very comfortable with using state power to further conservative goals, which would have been kind of anathema to a Reaganite or a Buckleyite of like, you know, the eighties. And so that, I think that's, a, and then one manifestation of that exactly what you just said, which is conservatives kind of imposing rules on corporations in terms of what can or can't be said online. Well, it puts, 
someone like me in a really tight spot, and I would argue someone like you too. So I'll be interested to hear your response. Like, so I live in California and ultimately where I end up, I guess Sorab Amari would uh, denigrate me as like a right liberal, uh, you know, which he would mean as like a term of abuse. But really at this point, increasingly just someone who is hoping the center will hold, um, you know, the Keats's uh, widening gyre as we like have these two sort of tribes drifting apart. And so it's like, well, I live in California and I totally agree with you on like CEQA. We're not, we're not even going to get into it, but like the ways that California law is just built against or designed against building anything, doing anything worthwhile in the world of atoms, but at the same time doing the sort of, uh, uh, oh, the term is not coming to me. But the notion that like, if you're a law abiding citizen, you can't get anything done under the permit regime. But if you're kind of outside of the system, you can do whatever you want up to and including like using fentanyl on the street. So it's like this uh, anarcho tyranny, I think. is. A Thank you. That's the term I'm looking for. Um, uh, you know, another checkpoint example. So like in Southern California, there are these immigration checkpoints that are like far past the border up, you know, as you go through like Yerba Buena that like I've never once in my life and I'm a native Californian seen them doing anything like concrete to inspect anything. I digress. Where do you go? Like, at the end of the day, I sort of feel like I, I know what I'm against. It's like, it's like anti-woke, anti-Trump, uh, hoping the middle will hold. And I don't know if there's a constituency for that right now. And that's a little bit disturbing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you, you mentioned this, you, you, you invoked the, you know, the, the devil of, of Sarab, so to speak, and the, and the post-liberals, um, which is funny because, you know, so Rob lives on the Upper West Side, or I think he moved to West Palm Beach or something. So like, <laughs> he's as much coastal bug man as anybody else. Um, so, you know, a lot of these people, I'm like, dude, so, uh, you know, show me your, you know, your Cabela's loyalty card or like what, you know, what's, what's your call on like 7.62 millimeter ammo versus 5.56? Like if I were to actually engage them with any sort of like red state, red blooded populist thing, they would stare at you like with blank stares and not know what the fuck you're talking about, right? Which is why I think a lot of what they do is like total performance art. Also, I mean, being post-liberal, so few of them seem to be tweeting from, you know, illiberal parts of the world, like, you know, Minsk or Havana or Pyongyang. Somehow they're all living in, in coastal American cities, um, which is why I often draw they remind me of like the hippies I used to debate. I also went to Berkeley for grad school, by the way, Corbin. Um, and in fact, I lived in I house, which is right next to Bolt, the, the law school that for you know, sure, for yeah, sure. Yeah. And I used to debate these hippies and it was like all this like anti-capitalist rhetoric. And the dude is sitting at fucking cheese board across the street from Chepanese in the gourmet ghetto in North Berkeley. And like, and then, you know, what the fuck are you doing here? If you, if you really think like, why don't, you know, why don't you get on the plane to Havana already? If it's, if it's so amazing to you, um, instead of sitting here eating your little cheese board. It's, it um, does seem like the whole country is just drowning in luxury opinions. Yes, exactly. It, it does, exactly. Um, I, I had Rob Henderson on the podcast at some point. He coined the thing about luxury beliefs, which is the sort of beliefs that you have to show off as a Veblen good, right? I, I, yeah. as, as, a, as a conspicuous consumption good but you don't actually follow in your life. So for example, upper-class people are all about, oh, you know, polyamory this or single mother that or whatever, but in their own lives, they're in stable families with, you know, 2.5 kids and have a mortgage and all the rest of it. And they don't actually live like the philosophy that they espouse. 
Um, and you can, you can cite many, many, many examples of that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how much of this is just inevitable to like a post-scarcity society that's living in a very sort of narcissistic social media space in which we don't have real problems to think about. And instead, we, we take outside problems and we turn them into our own or, or we frame them as part of our own political neuroses. The, a leading example of that, in my opinion, obviously, something I feel strongly about is Ukraine, right, which is the Ukrainian war, which there's a lot going on there. And I'm not going to totally deviate the conversation for that. But it's amazing how what what, you know, is an invasion and like a full on total land war has become nothing but some like current thing plaything in the American mediascape. And it's just amazing to me the luxury that we have that we hold most of the world at arm's length and can just discuss these things as it, with a level of sort of media nihilism that I think if we were experiencing them ourselves, we wouldn't we wouldn't have. Well, and that taps into the point. Eventually, reality returns um, and, you know, you're Detroit and Detroit collapses or, you know, whatever. So actually, I, I have a question for you, which is so you're founding a startup in San Francisco. Yes, if I'm correct. And so like but that means you still have faith in the capacity of the world of Adam, shall we say, of California and of San Francisco to give you the basic rule of law that you need to go find your network effect of talent in that area and, and go about your life and make your product without uh, the government either Hugo Chavezing you or the anarchy just getting so much that like, I don't know, the talent pool dies or whatever. So like, Oh no, no, no. So, I mean, you're, every, you're right in that. In fact, the reason why the call is so echoey is because I'm in my new empty apartment in San Francisco. I am moving here, but it's not because I have faith in any of those things. I just have a very stubborn ex who refuses. I have a, a six year old in the city. And so that's kind of an anchor that's anchoring me to this part of the world. And so I can't move away. And I, I do have a belief and this is kind of side, but you know, in early stage startups, I think in-person work definitely beats rem remote is good for many things. I'm not anti-remote necessarily, but for the early days of a startup, I think, you know, jamming with the same set of people in the same room at a whiteboard just beats remote work. And so I'm doing a total contrarian bet of San Francisco in-person startup, but it's not because I have faith in California. I think it's, I've just, you know, I think people live in San Francisco and they basically have Stockholm syndrome. They just don't realize it. Right. And I, I in my case, you know, I was raised in like 80s, 90s Miami, which was violent and had its own problems. So it's like, I don't know. Yeah, California is kind of violent and fucked up. But I don't know, keep a shotgun under your bed and just, you know, hope for the best and whatever. Just you keep your head on a swivel. And that's like, to me, that's not that terrible. I, I don't like it. Right. Like, it's funny. People like shit on Reno from San Francisco. You know what? Reno is better run than San Francisco. There's less crime. There's less everything in Reno than there is in San Francisco. But I'm, I'm willing to put up with it because my kid is here. But yeah, no, I don't think a Hugo Chavez thing is actually going to happen because, again, the plus side of all these luxury beliefs is that nobody actually acts on it, right? Like Google's never going to get nationalized, right? The, the, the National Guard's never going to be put on the street and like frisking people and jailing people into gulags. Like none of that's ever really going to happen like it like has happened in, in Venezuela or, or Cuba. So like I don't really fear that. I just fear like the, the high cost of doing everything. Everything is like cost of fortune and is mostly shit in San, in, in San Francisco other than, you know, tech talent and you know, the lifestyle is pretty good. Like there's, there's positives to the city. And of course the natural setting is absolutely gorgeous, right? I mean, California's kind of paradise. So there's a lot of good things for, for San Francisco, but like in the everyday of it, I'm just, yeah, you, you pay 13%. You're in a high tax regime. Your taxes are as high as they would be in Spain or Germany and you get nothing for it. You get literally a th third world infrastructure. And that's just the way it works because there's some center of gravity of talent here and whatever. I, I don't know. I can't explain it. <laughs> so how much culture war BS do you think techies can take from like a Texas or a Florida before, 
So like, because clearly you still think there's a talent pool that's adequate in California for your needs. The whole like story is that everybody's moving to Austin or uh, Miami. Like, what does the median sort of lefty tech person do if San Francisco is fentanyl needles and like poop on the street and Florida is like this uh, uh, reward your friends and punish your enemies, uh, right wing, bare knuckle politics? Well, I mean, cognitive dissonance can do a lot, right? Like, you know, DeSantis is getting tarred as some sort of like proto-fascist, which he's not. Um, And I I don't know. It's like, again, you know, I think, you know, I'm as anti-woke as the next guy. I don't know that the SF represents is a good example. I think it's a somewhat extreme example of a lot of left-wing American politics. But, you know, if you look, there's still people who who oppose the, the Chesa recall, right? So, you know, the DA who's I think by most sane opinion has been terrible. There are a lot of people who still support him and, and still think, in fact, he might run again in the next election. So I think there's, there's a huge amount of cognitive dissonance that can happen there. And they'll just blame techies in the same way that Biden blamed the gas station owners for the high gas prices, right? which is an absurd thought. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the town's still here. I mean, San Francisco hasn't really come back. Like you go to New York, Miami, Austin, they've all bounced back. They're all thriving. Like life has rebooted since COVID. Come back to San Francisco. That is not true, right? And some, you know, some of that is just cyclical. Like we're not in the tech boom that we were in like 2013, right? And and the city is a boom and bust town and has been since the gold rush. And so it'll it'll probably boom again at some point. I don't think this is the end of San Francisco. It's not the next Detroit. Um, but yeah, no, it ha- it really hasn't come back like you just walk around parts of san francisco and they're kind of desolate and kind of dead um but i don't know we'll see i mean i might have to abandon the i don't think i can leave san francisco because of my my parenting duties but i might have to abandon the in-person plan and hire remotely and just overpay for literally everything and kind of grumble about it well it's so funny because i was in dc until september 2020 and i actually have a somewhat similar situation i actually have three kids uh two three-year-olds and a one-year-old, identical twin boys. So up until two weeks ago, I had three under three. So like, that was my life. But we fled DC in the middle of like the riots in the middle of 2020, uh, middle of the pandemic. Like just, we were like right kind of in the thick of it and we were expecting the third. So it was like, just, you know, get us out of here. Uh, Came out to Lafayette here for like, because my wife's parents are here. And it's interesting that California, uh, I don't know, like it's a very similar situation. Like I can't, I'm kind of here, but I'm getting everything I need. I still work basically totally DC centric. Um, But one difference I'd say that's kind of interesting is like I'm in Lafayette, so I'm in the burbs and you'd, you'd never know the situation in San Francisco out here. And then the headlines that you read also, like every time I leave California, if you just based it on the news, you'd think it was all like Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. And you come out here and at least where I am, like the housing prices are still like eye-wateringly high. The infrastructure still does seem to work. It still seems to be a place that everybody wants to be. Um, so for what that's worth. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, one of the misleading things is that people tend to consider Silicon, or sorry, San Francisco analog, you know, basically equivalent to the Bay Area or Silicon Valley. And that's not true on either front, right? I mean, San Francisco, uh, unlike most major metro areas where like the core city is like a major, like New York City, like the the seven boroughs is like a large part of what we mentally consider to be the New York metro area, right? But that's kind of not true, actually, in the Bay Area. Like the city is literally seven miles by seven miles. It's at the the tip of the peninsula. It's got 700,000 people in it. 
but the greater Bay Area is like three million and change. And for those who don't know where Lafayette, California is, it's basically it's it's next to a maybe you've heard of Wana Creek or it's kind of the suburbs on the other side of the Oakland Berkeley Hills. And it's still kind of broadly considered to be part of the Bay Area, but it's very different. Like you said, like you cross the hills and it feels like some bucolic suburb, you know, in a ritzy part of Dallas or something like it's not it's not at all some sort of Californian hellscape. Um, but of course, with with the California beauty around it, which, of course, is is considerable. So, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, I mean, the, you know. And, it, and I've been in the Bay Area. So I came to Berkeley, I guess, in 2000. And it was in, like, the wake of the, the tech bubble crash. And so, like, I've seen this movie before, right? Like, Soma went from being the center of tech and whatever to kind of, like, this wasteland. And then it bounced back. By 2010, I had an office in Soma for my startup. And you would literally walk around and see, like, billionaire founders in every cafe you went to. And, and then but, and now we're back to desolation again. <laughs> so, well, one um, thing I'm curious about. Yeah, so, like, San Francisco, I think you're right. It's this sort of sine wave. Um, but tying it into the sort of the country as a whole, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Vaclav Smil um, is really obsessed with sort of numbers and he looks at growth and like sort of where America is. And we all feel like the, the I think there's sort of an underlying sense that a lot of people have that like chaos is increasing and dysfunction is increasing. And then there's a tension between that and the notion that like it's all LARPing, it's all luxury opinions. And I look out my window, certainly in Lafayette, California, maybe that's just my privilege speaking and things look beautiful and nice. Um, and he is really good at capturing the notion that sort of everything, not everything, but a lot more than you might think, um, operates on a sigmoidal curve. And actually this ties into a weird thing that you were mentioning in an earlier episode I listened to about the nation state and like, why the it's a sign that the end might be near for the nation state that right. there are fewer new nation states and a total smill just popped straight into my head of like there's probably if you charted it out like a sigmoidal curve of like the creation of new nation states and we're right up at the asymptote somewhere um and similarly like is there a story like that to be told in the united states and i'm not saying i really have an opinion on this because the whole thing is like you don't know until you you get there. It was Balaji on the last episode saying, if you're at like the crest of the roller coaster, you don't really know it. But at some point you do have to wonder when you hit that moment. And I don't know if I'm talking even specifically about San Francisco or the country as a whole of like every prediction of doom is wrong, except the last one. So it's like, yes, San Francisco goes on this up and down and up and down. And eventually there's like the last one where you've hit the asymptote on the growth and you're the United States, the complexity bogs you down sort of the system grinds to a halt. And it's the big mystery to me of like, are we at the asymptote or is this just like a typical, we're in 1972, you know, one of those uh, random years from sort of uh, between the late 60s and Reagan, where there were some times when people just thought everything kind of sucked. And like, it was just a phase. And, you know, a decade later, like I hope by the time my kids are going to high school, we will have hit like Ferris Bueller's Day Off era in our sine wave. Yeah, well, because I think we agree, Corbin, the 80s were the apex of Western civilization. Just Ferris Bueller, either either Back to the Future coming out or Ferris Bueller. I can't recall the exact. It's probably 84, 85. But that may have been the apex of life in, in America. And I mean, I hate to be basic about it, but like, yes, by the time they're going to high school, I want our culture to be that level of optimism and bubblegum. Right. And, and complete, like idiotic frivolity, but but somehow very sticky and successful. And by the way, all that came out while we were in, in the depths of an existential struggle 
<laughs> against this titanic enemy called the Soviet Union, right? Um, well, yeah, like I was born in 84, so it's not like I know what I'm talking about. Like I was six when the 80s ended. But, uh, you know, we all need our rose-tinted glasses about something or else, you know, you mentioned earlier um, Happy Friday, you know, the stuff I do for uh, a living. You know, we, we need our dreams. We need our dreams. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it, it's, it's hard to tell, right? On the one hand, look, it's never really the end of the world. <laughs> things bounce back, uh, you know, things transform. Um, on the other hand, it, it, and you see this attitude in people who actually have truly tragic backgrounds, either directly or just kind of epigenetically through their through their families. Like it is the case that societies implode, <laughs> right? I mean, my, my parents fled a society that imploded and destroyed itself, i.e. Cuba, which now is, is a disaster and a wreck compared to what it used to be. And you can cite other examples, right, from you know, Nazi Germany, Syria, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it is the case that actually, yeah, a certain order will just end and subsume itself into, like, violent turmoil. Um, yeah, the new right is obsessed with comparing us to Weimar Germany, for instance. Right, right. right. Um, and well, and I mean, so is the left, too, by the way. Like, it depends what, <laughs> depends what, what, what part of the metaphor you're drawing, either the sort of decadence or the eventual emergence of Hitler. But... Um, well, case, to be yeah. fair, yeah, being a Berkeley kid, for me, the only difference is, like, I grew up with the left always saying, like, I grew up in the left of, like, Paul Ehrlichian disaster predictions that never come true. But anyway, Right. And, and, and which, by the way, he's never conceded that he's wrong. That famous bet that he made and that he lost, he never conceded that he, that he I think he paid up the bet, but he's, he still is, like, sticking to his guns that were headed into the Malthusian trap. Anyhow, that's a whole side thing. Man, we've, we've run way over, Corbin. This, this conversation was... Um, Way more lit than I than I thought it might be. Um, thanks, thanks for coming on. Um, and uh, we've had an interesting conversation. I, you know, I'd love to have you on a, again. Actually, maybe with a little bit more agenda and structure about it, rather than just, uh, <laughs> rather than just, just any time. You know, to be honest, I kind of thought what we were going to be doing was like debating your um, pull request piece on the content moderation and like and and the free internet, and that we were going to like really start getting into it. Um, Oh. So maybe that'll be, we could do that some other time. But but anytime, anytime, any topic, I'm around, man. And you should bring your kid out to my pool here. We'll have, you know, the four kids for a barbecue. Okay. I think um, she's only just started to swim, which is interesting for me because in Miami, of course, every kid, they teach how to swim at one because like kids fall into pools and drown all the time. Um, but she is learning, she is learning how to swim. And I think, um, you know, it's funny. I, I assume, I mean, your kids seem very young, so they probably didn't experience it, but she, you know, she she came of age as a little girl during COVID. And so I think her, her vision of the world is very strange and warped in that she kept indoors a lot and only now, you know, is like regular life starting. I think she going to a suburban house with a pool, I think, would just totally flip her mind because it's not the sort of thing she sees on a regular basis. It's part of why we actually fled urban D.C. was because it was very much like in that environment, I felt it was going to shape them much more profoundly than out here. And the only thing at the moment I'd say is, they don't think twice about wearing masks all day in school, which, you know, is profoundly weird to those of us who are from the before times. But other than that, uh, they're, they're crazy, well-adjusted, little identical twin boys. You should come meet them. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I know. Um, it's one of the challenging things about being a parent that it turns out the blank slates are wrong. Genetics is real. And your children, so for better real. or worse, are little miniature versions of you. And so you're staring at little embryonic versions of you, which, depending on how you view yourself, is either wonderful or, or a horror show. <laughs> oh, man, I could do a whole podcast on parenthood, speaking of going outside my expertise. But. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Corbin. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, this will be syndicated out to Apple Podcasts and all of the place fine po podcasts are sold. And um, 
I can't remember who my guest is next week, so I can't plug them. Um, but read Chaos Monkeys now as ever. Oh, there we go. It's a great book. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you for reading it. Yes, and, and read, <laughs> read Chaos Monkeys. Okay, thanks, Corbin. Happy Friday, everybody. Cheers. You thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.